right. Good morning again. I have to say, Jimmy, it's great to have you back. When we sing and you're not in the room, I miss I miss hearing your voice. So it's good to good to hear you here today and have you here, brother. All right. So we are going to jump around a little bit in the Word. Uh, so you might want to have your if you've ever done like the old school Bible drills. Uh, there's four places we're going to be in the Word, and they should be familiar to you because they're places that we visited last week, uh, some of them. But uh, we're going to camp out whenever we get to the, to, towards the end. We're going to camp out in Matthew 5. We're going to go back to that. So if you want to open up to a passage where we're going to be whenever we close this thing out, Matthew 5 is where you should put your thumb and, uh, and then be ready to go around to some others. Um, so Matthew 5 10 through 12 is where uh, we're going to spend the closing amount of our time, but building up to that, uh, we're going we're gonna to take a little walk together. Um, I want to tell you that I find it remarkable how God makes things happen sometimes. Now, I, I, I'm not known in my day-to-day life as someone who is a systematic planner. I am a fly-by-the-seat-of-your-pants kind of guy. Uh, and I married a planner which is really good because she help, we help balance each other out. But when it comes to preaching and the preaching, I, I sit, I pray, I plan. I have Sundays mapped out. I, 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 I look at passages of Scripture and I think, okay, well, that makes sense. That looks like we can probably work our way through that in one Sunday without feeling like we're all, myself included, drinking water from a fire hose. Um, so there is a systematic plan to a sermon series, and, 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 and we do sit down and we, we talk about the passages and we pray over those things. And so like you can ask me what we're preaching on in a few weeks, and I'd probably have to look at my calendar, but I could answer your question. But one thing that I didn't do, I didn't intentionally plan for some of the verses that flow out of the three, we took three weeks away from Matthew, to look at Easter passages. And then we're coming back to Matthew this week, and then we're taking a break from Matthew to look at things for Mother's Day next Sunday, which, men, remember, next week, Mother's Day. Okay? There's your little reminder. I'll send you another one midweek. Okay? Read your emails. Okay? So I, I did not, I knew those dates were there. I knew we were taking a break from the sermon series, but one thing I couldn't have told you was how well God's Word was going to flow in between all those things. And I find that to be remarkable. So I hope you get to see it today as we look at this. There's aspects of what we're doing today, what we did the last three weeks, what we've done for the past few years here, whether it's starting in Judges, when we do a Judges series, and now that flowed into the next one, that flowed into the next one. And you can't plan that. I think that's awesome. I think that's awesome. So God's word, guided by his spirit, make these things happen. And uh, I'm, I'm prayerful that today we can uh, see some of that stuff a little more clearly. And I'm praying that more and more time spent in the word like this makes the word come alive and produces a deeper hunger and a thirst to know it and to study it and to apply it. That there's a gnawing in us that, that we want to know more, that we want to dive deep into God's word and we want to do that together. That's one of the prayerful outcomes of why we spend so much time looking at God's word intently. So would you take a walk with me today uh, as we just open these pages and see where God takes us? I want to start by looking at a passage that we looked at last week. We've actually looked at several times in the life of this church and it's 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 
1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I believe it's going to be on the screen if you, uh, if you want to read it off of there. But if you'd like to turn there, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, New Testament letter that Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica. And uh, this is a, a statement that Paul is making to the church in Thessalonica, but he's also making it to us, which I think is pretty remarkable. We looked at it last week, so I'm not going to belabor it. I just want to look at it again because it's going to lay a pretty good foundation for us to build on this week. He says this in, verse, in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 3 and 4. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive Now, I'm going to stop there and just give you a quick explanation of what's happening. He's preaching the gospel, and there's false gospels happening everywhere. Uh, There's there's gospels that are saying you need to have, yes, you can believe in Jesus as Messiah, but you also need to follow the law, and he's he's addressing a lot of these things, and he's, he's, he's trying to slice through a church's theology to say, like, let, let God's word be the knife. Let it be the surgical knife that does all of the work. Let, let God's word do that. So let your theology be firm and build on something. And he's saying our appeal, we're making an appeal for that to happen. And our appeal doesn't come from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. He's saying we're not looking to make you feel more confused. We're not looking to bring in something so that you depend on us. We're not looking to make, make you feel like you need us. No, no what we're doing is it's, it's, it's based and formed on the on the reality that God himself has anointed us to do this work and to teach this message. And so that's where he's saying, that's what the groundwork is. And he's saying, so just as we, verse four, have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. He's saying to them, you're going to hear us say things and do things at times that you don't like. That, that rub against you. In Proverbs, we, we quote the proverb of, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another man, or so one brother sharpens another brother, so one person sharpens another person. And for that to happen, iron needs to strike iron. Sometimes it's not a quick, easy file. Sometimes it is a collision. That's what God's Word does sometimes, doesn't it? Doesn't God's Word collide with us sometimes? And we're stopped dead in our tracks. The airbags blown. We're still alive, but we've felt the impact, didn't we? And we're forced to adapt, change, or be mad. Like we want to blame. We want to find out whose fault it is, whatever. But it doesn't change the reality of what God's Word is doing, right? So what Paul is trying to say is you need to have the proper filter That way, whenever there are things that come your way that don't flatter you, that these hard truths are being said and you hear them, you can trust that they're coming from a source that's much bigger than me, is what Paul's saying. Paul's saying he's working hard to be someone who is approved by God and entrusted with the good news of Jesus, entrusted with God's holy foundational truth, the word. So he has been approved by God and entrusted with eternal words. 
And he adds at the end, God himself looks at my heart and judges my motives. So if I come into this town of Thessalonica or I write you a letter or I teach anyone and I'm doing it to try to get your popularity, to get your likes, to get you to want to be more like me, and I'm doing that for an ego trip, or I'm doing that for any purpose aside from bringing glory and honor and praise to the God of the world, he sees my heart and he knows that. So I've been entrusted with care of good news and he watches my heart and he sees it. So know that, what he's saying to the people, know that when I say something that might not rub you the right way, might brush up against your day to day, know this, I am more interested in pleasing God and making sure that I live with a pure heart than I am whether or not you throw stones at me to the point where you think I'm dead, try to crucify me, try to burn me at the stake, try to get me arrested, behead me, which eventually they did. He's more interested in building his life on the foundation of God's truth than what people, how people are going to react to God's truth. Does that make sense? And what this word tells us is we are entrusted, approved by God, which is amazing, approved by God and entrusted with that same message. Have, do we lose sight of that sometimes? I feel like we lose sight of that sometimes. I feel like when we read a letter like Philippians, Colossians, 1st, 2nd Thessalonians, and we think about Paul, we don't make the, we don't do the math to see the equality of what we've been entrusted with being the exact same thing that Paul was entrusted with. That Paul was empowered and taught at the feet of a very real Jesus. That's what made his blind eyes see. And we have been at the feet of that very same Jesus and approved by that very same Jesus and equipped with that exact same truth to do the exact same stuff that Paul did. Now, maybe a thousand or so years from now, no one's going to be reading your letters. But the impact of us living out truth will and should be felt generations from now. Just like Paul did the work of the gospel, which eventually worked its way through, just like all the disciples and followers of Jesus that took Jesus seriously. And eventually that crossed oceans and continents and made its way right here, right now. We are all living out of the reality that they believed Jesus and they did the work of the gospel. And we have that truth entrusted to us because somebody else took Jesus at his word and believed him and then did the work. And passed down through the centuries, that's us. That's our identity. Now, that's the foundation. The footer has been poured. The cement is now set. The bricks have been laid. We're ready to start building and framing in this thing. Okay? We've been approved by God and entrusted with good news. We've been entrusted with the gospel. The same exact thing that Peter and John and Paul, they were all entrusted with the exact same thing. The heroes of the faith that we talk about, whether it's Spurgeon or whether it's Martin Luther, entrusted with the exact same thing as you and I. So, when a group of people, in Scripture that word is ecclesia, 
what we call church, live out of that reality. When a group of people realize that they are indwelled with the Spirit of God, empowered and equipped and entrusted with the power of God, with the message of God, and approved by Him to do it, when a group of people get together to do that, what does that look like? Well, I'm glad you asked. Acts 2 is a verse, again, that we look at quite often here, but it's important that we ground ourselves in this reality. Acts 2, 42 through 47. Listen to this again. This is what a group of people, a group of people that are living out of that approved and entrusted reality, this is what it looks like. We have a clear example to reorient ourselves around often. So listen to how they lived. There's a word there, the third word in what we're going to read, and I want to stop there. I'm not going to explain it. I'm just going to stop there. I'm going to let it hang heavy in the room, and I want you to think about your life and what you're devoted to. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Okay, now it's easy to make the comment, I don't care what people think about me. I just say it like it is, right? Those are things that our culture holds in high regard, right? I don't care what people think about me. I'm going to speak my mind. I'm going to live my truth. Right? That's the kind of things our culture says. So the question that we have to ask, okay, we know who's approved us, right? Who has approved us? God. It's a good answer. It's a church answer. You guys should get these ones. Okay? These are softball questions I'm about to ask. All right? Are you ready? Who has approved us? Who has entrusted us? There you go. You guys did great. Now, when we live like that, can that lead to arrogance? Sure it can. Sure it can. Because we can have a chip on our shoulder that says, only God, I only live to care what God thinks about me. Therefore, I don't care what you think about me. And quick aside, social media in our world has made it a thousand times worse. Because we've, we all feel like we have a platform now. So we have four or five people that consistently like our horrible posts on Facebook and that makes us feel good about ourselves somehow. So does it matter how people view you? Does it matter? I mean, come on, I've been approved by God. I've been entrusted with the gospel. I only need to live for God's approval when he has already given it to me. So do I need to even care? about what you think about me? It's a hard answer because it's yes and no. I need 
I need you to care about how you see Jesus in me. But I don't need to care whether or not you approve of me. Does that make sense? If my approval is coming from an eternal source, there's absolutely zero place on earth that can give me an approval that's better than that. So I should stop looking for it. I should stop living my life for somebody else's approval. But this passage here, Acts 2, tells us something important. It tells us something important about what ecclesia looks like, what the church looks like. And whenever they put this into practice, this 1 Thessalonians 2, 3, and 4, approved and entrusted, when they put that into practice and when they get it right, when they get it right, and what I mean by that, when they know what it looks like to live out of this being approved and entrusted by God, when they get it right, something amazing happens. First of all, it doesn't seem to bother the early church that how their rhythms of their life look to the outside world. It doesn't seem to bother them that their commitment isn't to something outside of the church. It doesn't seem to bother them that all of their time, all of their time, is, that's outside of, I'm sure they all had jobs because they had money to share with one another. They had property to share with one another. So they all had jobs. They all had livelihoods. They weren't just all sitting in a room singing Kumbaya 24-7. They had lives. They were engaged in the community. People knew who they were. But when they had extra time to devote themselves to something, it tells us what they were devoted to. It tells us that when somebody said, hey, what's so-and-so's life built on? If somebody asked that about you, how would they answer? By watching the rhythms of your day-to-day -day life, what would they say you're devoted to? Oh, he's devoted to Netflix. He or she's devoted to the Sixers. He or she's devoted, don't be devoted to the Sixers too much longer, by the way. I don't think it's looking good for them. I'm sorry, it's just not. Hopefully I'm wrong. Watch the rhythms of your day-to-day -day life. What are you devoted to? Because as the outside world was watching the early church, they watched what they were devoted to. They watched how they lived their lives. And the people that were in the church, that were part of the church, part of this ecclesia, didn't seem to care at all whether people said, Dude, you're at church all the time. Dude, how many times are you going to eat a meal at your friend's house? Or there's always people in your driveway. Why in the world would you sell that piece of property and give the money away? Are you serious? If you hold on to that for another 10 years, it'd be worth so much money. You just gave it away? Are you serious? What do you mean you gave away your third car? That car was awesome. It doesn't seem to matter to the early church, what is coming out of what they're devoted to from an outside perspective. Does that make sense? Yet, something remarkable happens in verse 47. The church is gathered, and it says that they spend their time praising God. At the end of all that stuff, they're giving their money away. They're giving their homes away. They're giving their land away. They're liquidating their retirement accounts because they're saying, this person needs it now. I shouldn't worry about what I need later. That's the kind of crazy stuff that's happening in the church right here. When the church is arguably at its absolute best right here. It says they're praising God. And then it says something remarkable. Do you see it? 
We've talked about this before, but do you see it? Verse 47. Having what? With all the people. Now, hard, hard question. Is that true of the church now? The people that you interact with that don't attend church or don't know Jesus, would they say in their story that the church has gained favor, that they respect the church, the things the church draws lines in the sand for are respectable things, the things that the church stands up and speaks on is respectable and gains favor with them? No, what has happened is we lost favor with culture and now we change our theology to appease culture to try to get their favor back. And what happens here is consistent commitment to Jesus. And that gains favor. That gains favor. So a group of people... So let's look at that, the foundation, an individual reality. You're, you're personally, you personally are approved by God and entrusted with the life-giving eternal message of Jesus. You've been approved by God. He looks at your whole life and he has approved you and entrusted you with eternal truth. At the same level, he entrusted someone like Paul. Then... We gather together with like-minded people. And what does it look like when we all get together? It's crazy. There's this crazy stuff that happens. You find yourself hanging out with people that without Jesus you probably would have never even met. You find yourself liking people that without Jesus you probably wouldn't have even liked. You find yourself thinking crazy things that unify you with other people. You find yourself giving money to things that, that, that before you ever met Jesus you would have never, ever given money to. You find yourself devoting your time to stuff that you're like, that wasn't even important to me X amount of time ago. Because you've been approved and entrusted. And you're with like-minded people who have been approved and entrusted. And then the rhythms of that healthy community looks like this. And then what happens? When we actually take Jesus seriously, what happens we gain favor with all the people. And then listen to what happens because the math is important. We miss this. Praising God, verse 47, and having favor with all the people, period. Then what happens? Let's read that together. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Can you go back? Let's do it one more time. Having favor with all the people, period, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So it does matter how people view you. Because if we're going to see people come to know Jesus day by day, God adding to their number day by day those who are being saved, it's going to take 
people living out of the reality that they have been approved by the God of the universe and entrusted with the good news of Jesus. And they find like-minded people who want those kind of rhythms and we healthily live it out together. And then all of a sudden that aroma meets the community and the community sees something beautiful and it gains favor and it gains audience. And then God's adds to their number daily. But that's hard work, church, and it's countercultural. Now, here's why this is important. There's a lot of reasons why this is important. But for context, I just want to look at something because I want you to hear what Paul writes then to the church in Corinth. Now, then we're going to get into the Matthew passage, I, I promise. You're not going to be here all day. Well, if you're in my community group, you're going to be with me all day. But you chose that. So, 1 Corinthians 1.18, listen to what Paul says. For the word of the cross this message that we've been entrusted with, is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is the power of God. Here's why I think that's important. To gain favor, to gain favor, you need to be seen. Now, there are plenty of examples of someone who came to know Jesus because they met someone for the first time and they came to know Jesus on a cold call. Whether it was a track handed to them or whether it was a knock on the door or whether that was a, a Billy Graham crusade or you fill in the blanks. There are instances. I'm not saying that it doesn't work. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that Acts 2 tells us that if we're going to see God add to the number day by day, those who are being saved, then we need to trust him with our daily rhythms and trust him with what we're devoted to, to the point where the people that are in our sphere of influence find our lifestyle to be favorable, find our interactions with them to be favorable. Basically, what that means is the people who in your life who don't know Jesus, you have their attention. They're paying attention. They're watching. They're watching. They follow you on social media. They watch how you spend your time. They're paying attention. But at the front end, someone who doesn't know Jesus what Paul is reminding the church in Corinth is to just hammer them with that hard truth right away. Just know that you're telling them they need something that up to that point they don't feel like they need. You're going to interact with people, he says, that have everything this world tells them they need in life. And you're going to tell them that they're missing something that is crucial to all of it. And it's not going to be a felt need, which means it feels like foolishness. They're headed to an eternal destination that is opposite of your eternal destination because they believe the word of the cross to be foolishness or folly. But for us who are being saved, what's the thing that it is to us? It is the power of God, which means it's not going to be us that converts them over to who Jesus is anyway. It's going to be the power of God working in us. So when the scriptures tell us to do the work of an evangelist, to go do the work of an evangelist, go tell people this message. It is the power of God and the kindness of God that brings people to repentance. Not our words, not our presentation, not our, not our deep-rooted theological training. No, it's just your life. It's you being devoted to Jesus. 
So there's the groundwork. Now let's look at Matthew 5 because Jesus says something very important for us to look at. Coming out of all the other things we looked at in the Beatitudes, this is one of the only times that Jesus says something and he adds two blessings to it. So verses 10, 11, and 12 of Matthew chapter 5, listen to this, and then we're going to break it down real quick. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, and for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, are you starting to see how beautiful God's Word is? We didn't plan it all this way. I didn't, I didn't intentionally look at, at all this and say that it's all going to build a bridge right back to one week looking at Matthew before we pause it again. But are you seeing it? The connection points here? God in His infinite wisdom gave us time to breathe a little bit from the, from the, the Beatitudes and what we're learning and then look at the beauty of the cross to reinforce this message in us so that we are ready to hear that the reality is it's not always going to be easy. It's not always going to be easy. Now, Jesus is saying this to a crowd that has no idea what he's about to go into or enter into in just a few short, uh, just, just a little bit of time ahead. This is pre the cross. So they're, they've maybe heard him say some things, but they have no idea what he's going to endure yet. So he's saying, blessed are you when those... When, when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake, when you are living out of your core identity, when you're living out of that, that's when you receive the blessing of God. You've already received the blessing of God in your eternity. You've, been, you've received the blessing of God by having an eternal standing with God. And when you walk that way, when you live that way, there will be those who oppose you. You've already got the kingdom of heaven. It is your inheritance. And when people revile you and they persecute you and they utter all kinds of evil against you falsely in the name of Jesus, rejoice and be glad because your reward is heaven. And you're not the only one this has happened to. What Jesus is saying here is stay eternally focused and remember you're not by yourself. Now, there's a couple things that I think we need to break down here to make sense because we use the word persecute sometimes and it's really not persecution. You know, if someone says something mean to you on Facebook, I don't know if I'd throw that in the persecution category. But listen to like when we slice it down and look at the Greek, the, the word persecuted can be uh, translated into three different English words depending on its usage. And here Jesus finds a way magically to use all of them. Persecute can be uh, translated pursue, chase, or harass. The other thing that we need to remember about this is the word when can also be translated in Greek as whenever. And doesn't that change things? When you say when as opposed to whenever, when it's said in this context, that means it's going to happen. When I say just when 
it happens, there's some room in us to see like, eh, maybe, maybe not. But when it changes to whenever, it amps up the expectation that it will happen, right? Maybe that's not how you read it, but that's how I feel it and understand it. The other thing about how Jesus used it, it's a present tense participle in Greek. What Jesus uses is the word persecuted here. And that can be translated as allow themselves to be persecuted. So with that in mind, let's look at this again. Blessed are those who allow themselves to be pursued, chased, and harassed for the sake of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and pursue, chase, and harass you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely in my name. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they pursued, chased, and harassed the prophets who were before you. The early church had three forms of persecution that was mainly going to come to them. And uh, I mean, there's more, but when you slice it down, there's essentially three forms in which this persecution is going to happen. And they endured it, but be honest with you, the only reason they endured it is because they, they didn't just believe in God, they believed Him. So persecution could come to uh, someone in the early church in the form of their family. See, family commitment was, was of top priority, especially if you were coming from a Jewish household. So in a household where maybe you became a believer in Jesus, but your parents or your siblings weren't, uh, then, or maybe, maybe a spouse didn't receive Jesus at the level you did or when you did, and as a result, some people were shunned, they were beaten, they were disowned, and they were even possibly killed because of their faith in Jesus. And to be shunned out of a Jewish family was like top-end punishment. The other way that persecution hit them was in their social life. Now, a lot of the things that happened in the society back then happened in celebrations and gatherings happened in the temple. And people would bring meat to be sacrificed, and then a portion of that would be, would be sacrificed to the gods, and another portion was given to the priests, and the majority went out to those who sacrificed. And they would celebrate, and they would eat, and they would drink at the temple in honor of their gods. And so if you got invited to that, your invitation would say something like, you are invited to dine at the table of Lord Serpentus, which is a name of another god. And that meant that you had to make a decision whether you were going to go partake in a festival or a meal that was given in honor and glory to a false god. And in their day and age, that was where society was gathering. So say no to that was to ostracize yourself from community because when you said no to that, you needed to tell them why you were saying no to that. You didn't just RSVP no. You need to tell them why. You get invited to a wedding, you can RSVP no. Actually, sometimes the bride and groom are hoping you RSVP no. But that's just a little secret on the inside here. Out of the 300 people we invited, all of them came. All of them came. I think I just gave Adelaide a headache. But. 
But you didn't just RSVP no, you had to tell them why. That what was your reason for not coming? And you, so if you were committed to Jesus, did you make an excuse? Uh, I just have a headache. I'm just not feeling up to it. Well, what do you do next time you get invited? Or the next time? Or the next time? Or the next time? These social gatherings are happening quite a bit. And so they were, they were persecuted in their own social lives and ostracized. And they got separated. They got hated. They got left outside looking in, which meant friendships just didn't last. And then the other way was in their employment. So uh, if you were a blacksmith, a lot of your livelihood may have come from making false idols for people that wanted to worship their gods. So if you met Jesus and you gave your life to Jesus, you had to turn down work. You turned down work to enough people. Word got out in the community. Word of mouth is everything in small business, isn't it? All of a sudden, you weren't making any money. So persecution in the early church, the people Jesus is talking to, the cost seemed to be a little bit more than the way we define persecution. They unfriended me on Facebook. They had a get-together the other night. They all got together for dinner, and I didn't get invited. I'm being persecuted. Now, doesn't that seem kind of silly in contrast to what the early church was up against when it came? Because you literally, if you stood up against your father and said, I do not believe in your gods, he had legal right at times to murder you, disown you, and murder you. And it happened in families. Excuse me. Okay. So what does this mean for us? If Jesus is saying that it will happen whenever this happens, whenever you step into this, whenever it happens, this is how you step into it. Trust me. Have an eternal focus. Trust what you've already been given. Not what you've been, not just what you've been promised, but what you've been given already. You've been given eternal life. And yeah, someday the promise will become Reality, you will stand in the presence of a holy God for all eternity. We should want to give that out to the masses as much as possible. That's the call. But some people won't like that message. So what is the takeaway? What are the takeaways for us? Well, here's the first one. What your identity is rooted in will guide your decisions and it will guide your convictions. Whatever you find your identity in will define your devotion. If some part of you is performance-oriented, your identity will not be wrapped up in Jesus. It will be wrapped up in the things you're committed to. Day to day, you will busy yourself doing the things of this world, and you will fit the things of God in. You will deal with anxiety and insecurities all abounding if your identity is rooted in something other than Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 2, 3, and 4. We should all have it printed out like on our... Uh, Spurgeon's wife, by the way, would, would print out Scripture and, and tack it. She would write it out. Not, she wouldn't hit the printer. This is a long time ago. She would, uh, she would write out Scripture and she would pin it to the ceiling above his bed where he slept so that whenever he 
laid down in bed before he closed his eyes to go to sleep, he was seeing his identity. He was seeing who he was in Christ. She saw him go through massive depressions, and that's how she dealt with it. She prayed over him, and she put the scripture on the ceiling above the bed, and he, he woke up in the morning. The first thing he saw, boom, this is who you are. So what, what your identity is rooted in will guide your decisions. It will guide your convictions. What you're devoted to will guide your decisions. It will dictate them. So is your identity in the reality that if you are in Christ, you have been approved by God and entrusted with the gospel? Number two, you will be an outcast at times. That is an assured promise. Matter of fact, it was so important for Paul to say this, that what we see in 2 Timothy is basically Paul's eulogy that he's writing for himself. It's his last will and testament. It's final instructions he gives to his spiritual son, Timothy. And in 2 Timothy chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 12, listen to what he reminds Timothy of. This is exactly what he says. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Same word, by the way. All those who desire to live a godly life will be pursued, run down, harassed, chased. He makes it clear to Timothy. You're going to do the work of the Lord. Stay committed to the work of the Lord. Stay the course of the work of the Lord. Not everyone's going to like that. You will be an outcast at times. There will be people that say they don't want to be around you anymore because of this holy roller stuff or you're, you're just into that Bible stuff too much or you're just always at church stuff. We used to hang out all the time. You used to come out and party with us all the time. Now you don't come anymore. Dude, you're kind of boring now. You will be ostracized. You will be on the outside looking in from a society standpoint. But with God's, by God's grace, if we adorn the gospel well, those tables turn and people who don't know Jesus aren't the ones trying to draw us out to them. We're the ones standing there and they want to come where we are. When we adorn the gospel well, that's what happens. The third thing, to encourage us all, there's strength in numbers. There's strength in numbers. Look at the Acts 2, 42 through 47 again. Again, print that one out. Put it somewhere you read it all the time. Stick together with like-minded people. What should happen when you're with the gathered church is you can take a deep breath and feel like, these are my people. These are my people. Can I just say you make me feel like that? You make my wife and I feel like that. You have become our family. And I still love my family. It's not like I, I forsake them. But I, I don't see them as often I see, as I see you. And when there's wavering or when there's doubt, I can gather with my brothers and sisters and I can think, okay, no, this is good. This is good. This is good. Being devoted to Jesus is so good. It's so good. And you help me with that. In moments of like utter despair, which have happened for me over the past two years. Wanted nothing more than to quit this job. I wanted out. I wanted out completely. 
I don't want anything to do with pastoral work anymore. And if I step away, God, I'm done. I'm not coming back to it. And I begged him to give me an out. And every time, every time I got really close to finding an out, one of you people <laughs> were used to drag me out of that pit. My wife can share the same sentiment. The church being the church is what helps us breathe a sigh of relief and know that what we're doing is right and it's good. That's why the church and Acts gathered so often. They needed each other. And as the church grew, they still needed each other. They still wanted to gather together. They still wanted to get people. They wanted people to understand it. They didn't stop gathering. They kept doing it because they needed it. So there's strength in numbers. It's not just about coming to church on Sundays to check a box, to say, hey, I was at church. No, this should be a safe harbor for you on Sundays that you, you pull into sometimes on fumes, nothing left in the tank, and you walk in the door, you're like, please, God, let people be there. And then all of a sudden you leave feeling completely different than you did when you came in. That's the gathered church. We can gain energy because of the Spirit working in us. We can gain energy from one another. We're better together. There's strength in numbers. Not because we love the holy huddle we've built, because we want to see more people come into this, just like the early church did, but like-minded people in Jesus. <sighs> okay, I can do this. I can do this. And the last one, number four, gaining favor is a key ingredient to evangelism. Gaining favor is a key ingredient to evangelism. Titus 2.10 reminds us that we adorn the gospel of God, that we wear it, that we are clothed in the robes of righteousness, that we adorn the gospel well, when others see it, when they smell it, when they're around it, it is attractive to them. I'm going to ask the band to come up and get ready to lead us in a closing song. But before they start playing the song, I just want to give you one quick illustration to help bind this together. Gaining favor is a key ingredient to evangelism. I picture it almost like my mom's... Uh, Vegetable beef soup, it's a process. It's like a day-long process. And I don't know why, but that soup just keeps expanding and expanding, and you can have a pot that big, and it's almost overflowing by the time it's done. It's, it's, it's slow cooking the beef, and it's, it's slow simmering some of the vegetables, and you're adding ingredients over time. And the more stuff you add to that broth, the better it smells until it becomes an intoxicating smell throughout the house. And if it's a nice day and the windows are open, you can be in the yard and still smell it. It's like that old Tom and Jerry cartoon where he, he smells the pie and starts like floating through the air to get to where the smell is, right? That's the church, folks. Each one of us brings something else to throw into this 
cauldron or pot as you were. Uh, and, and, and as it's cooking, as it's brewing, as it's steeping, it sends a scent out to the community. And if we're putting in what God deposited in us into that soup, it will smell intoxicating to the community around us. And they will want to know where it's coming from. And they'll want to step inside and they'll want to know how we made our soup. What's the recipe? This stuff is delicious. It smells intoxicating. How did you make this? You ever hear someone say that? They come to your house, they eat something delicious, and they say something like, oh, you have to give me this recipe. I think I've said that to Eileen 347 times. <laughs> so something is inviting and something is, has an aroma that is pleasing, you want to be near where it's coming from. You want, to, you want to taste it. You want to experience it. If someone's slow cooking a, a, a brisket in their backyard and that smoke wisps its way down into your neighborhood, aren't you instantly hungry for barbecue? That's the church. I used to live in a town right next to a paper mill. You ever smell a paper mill? You don't want to. They take rotten wood pulp and they process it and it smells like, excuse my crassness, it just smells like a really bad fart. <laughs> the whole community does. It, it, it hits the whole community. You drove through the town of Roaring Spring, Pennsylvania, and it smelled like that from right outside to coming into town until you got outside of it and then you got to the pastures and cow manure, but that's a different... But I often thought, doesn't the church smell like that instead? Doesn't the church sometimes put out a wafting smell of something repulsive? I would drive faster through Roaring Spring because I just wanted to get through it. Church, we're better together. And finding favor and gaining favor with the community around us is central and key to evangelism. If we want to see people come to know Christ, we better be devoted to him together. Here's the really, really, really good news. It doesn't depend on you and it doesn't depend on me. It is all Christ in us. Yet not I, but Christ in me. Would you pray with me? God, we are grateful that we can know who you are and we know whose we are when we are in you. We are yours your workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which you have planned out in advance. So may the aroma that works its way outside of Journey Church, because we're about to leave this building, may that aroma hit the community of where you've placed us and be an intoxicating smell that people want to know where it's coming from. They want to know what ingredients went into making it. And then we get the honor and the pleasure of seeing you gain favor in the community and us seeing you add to our number daily those who are being saved but we know that it won't always be easy we know that people will stand against us we know that jesus warned us that there would be persecution that there would be harassment we know that to be true but may we all find our core identity in who you've already approved us to be and who you already what you've already entrusted us with and may we live in the reality that doesn't depend on us it, it is you in us, yet not I, but Christ in me. In your name we pray these things. Amen.